0: We do have a ton to get through in this episode.
1: Common sense is finally prevailing.
0: There was controversy this month, Dave.
1: I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and
0: things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round.
1: Every doctor who is liked by somebody, and that's a really good
0: thing. Davo, my doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I
1: get why fans are asking those questions.
0: Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It- doesn't compute it's the elephant in the room that's okay fandom versus the bbc the carnal sin moving along lunch g'day i'm rob and i'm dave and you're listening to the doctor who show going out on my birthday 2022 may 29th dave how are you i'm good happy birthday for now in the future Yes, of course, dear (laughs) listener, we do record these things in advance. So I've I've slightly thrown Dave there by mentioning it's my birthday because it hasn't happened yet.
1: It it will be, was, did happen, possibly happened. I'm not quite sure if we've got the right past, present pronoun tense in there.
0: No, no, that's right. And yours will happen before our next episode.
1: Yes, mine's coming up quite soon, I think. Mmm,
0: not too long after mine. That's right, that's right. Oh,
1: well, birthdays all around. Yes. We have a lot to talk about tonight, Rob.
0: We do. I'm sort of faffing about, Dave. We we do have a lot to talk about. Of course, tonight's episode, dear listener, is our Season 1 retrospective, as voted for by you good folks on Twitter.
1: Uh, yes, a... I must admit, surprisingly decisive win. One of the strongest wins we've had in these polls, I think.
0: I was absolutely dumbfounded. People want to hear about season one. They want us to go back to the black and whites. Absolutely. That's what we've done.
1: Very happy to. But I thought, you know, with some some Tom in there and some New hue in there, I thought, no, they won't go for another black and white. But they did overwhelmingly. So, <laughs> great. We've had a lot of to watch.
0: Yeah. The Hinchcliffe era has to get up sometime. I'm just going to put it in each time, Dave. <laughs>
1: I'm sure we'll get there very soon. But we've got a lot of other little bits to talk about first. It's been quite a month in fandom.
0: It has been quite a month in fandom. And in fact, even uh, listeners to the podcast, fans of the podcast, if I can call them that, have been dropping us reviews on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's known these days, and also Podchaser as well. So I think I'll kick off because we like to do these at the start of the show, Dave, with uh, some of these reviews. How about that?
1: Yeah, f- absolutely. We've, we've got three. This is unprecedented again. So um, let's dive in.
0: Okay. This first one has the title, Two Dudes Talking About Doctor Who, Five Stars, from Almir Dries via Apple Podcasts. They're from Canada. And the comment runs, It's always fantastic finding a podcast in the great two dudes talking tradition and this one is a gem. I appreciate the host's kind honesty, friendly banter and as a 20-something Who fan, I also appreciate their knowledge of Classic Who and fandom pre-revival. Fun tidbits, fandom insight and a real love for Doctor Who. Great stuff.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Indeed. This next one is a five-star review left at Podchaser from Who Won Universal, and that's the artist formerly known as Spiral Scratch on uh, Twitter, if you if you know Spiral Scratch. I do. Thank you very much for sending us a review. i much appreciate it. Yes. This one runs, "'Brilliant, fantastic chaps, just sheer fun, and they really know their stuff. Really, just like having a couple of friends over for a cuppa. Doesn't feel like a podcast, just a great discussion.'" best i've listened to and they don't take themselves too seriously either highly recommend for anyone who loves who but in particular like-minded individuals who watched classic and lived through the wilderness years
1: we definitely lived through the wilderness years and i think we definitely <laughs> don't take ourselves too seriously so that's right <laughs> thank you very much um we have a third one here which is titled always worth a listen five stars From morning time of iApple podcasts in Finland. Now I'm planning to go to Finland in a couple of months, so I will check out our fan base in Finland potentially while I'm there.
0: Morning time, get in touch with Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Have a a drink or so, that'd be fun.
1: The review goes there are a lot of Doctor Who podcasts out there, but I limit my listening to four or five, two of which come from our Aussie cousins. This one covers various angles. Episode reviews, top 10 best or worst, insert theme here, letters from magazines and fanzines of the past, and sometimes fantasy mashups. The hosts are both opinionated, but also laid back and open to other viewpoints. As a child of 80s Who, I'd say this podcast ticks many boxes for me, as the 80s are always well represented, but to be fair, every era gets its moment. For some reason, I particularly like hearing about Who fandom in Oz back in the days when there was no new series. Australians were lucky to get what sounds like an endless cycle of Who and Goody's entertainment. I love hearing the passion of fans back then.
0: Wow, I'd be interested in hearing about Doctor Who in Finland myself.
1: Yes, did did Morning Time grow up in Finland with Doctor Who or have they moved to Finland from a... uh, I don't know, from somewhere that had Doctor that we think of. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I I know a couple of people in Finland. I went to primary school with a pair of Finnish uh, twins. And uh, they moved back there. And I should ask them, maybe.
1: Absolutely. You know, Finland, 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 the country (laughs) where I quite want to be.
0: Very good. So, look, thank you so much for those reviews. And if you do leave us a, a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, let us know, or we'll catch it at the end of each month when we get the, uh, the wrap-up from our services that gather all these things together. And uh, we'll read it out at the start of the show.
1: We absolutely will. Now, Rob, with a lot happening this month, we've almost kind of blurred our news and mini topics into not a homogenous <laughs> blob, but a little bit more uh, blurry than normal.
0: Yeah, normally we have three or four distinct news stories and you talk about one and I talk about one. But this month there's just a lot of dot points, so maybe we should just talk about what's been happening in in general and see where it takes us, Dave.
1: We should, and, and we should probably point out at this stage, Rob, that we did drop a special all dedicated to the announcement of Shooty Gatwa because it came a couple of days after our last monthly.
0: Oh, that's right. So if people haven't caught up with that, we've already spoken about Shooty in a mini episode what was it about 10 minutes long yes yeah uh, already so we're not talking about Shooty here what we really want to talk about is Doctor Who is filming again with David Tennant and, and friends and this is very exciting Dave
1: It is. So after the announcement of Shooty Gatwa's casting, there was sort of a a run of announcements over the course of a week, and it became very clear why some of them were happening at this point, because Mm. suddenly there were the usual leaked shots and photos from filming locations with with various actors that would have been quite a giveaway. So they've, they've announced David Tennant, they've announced Catherine Tate, they've announced... Bernard Cribbins, all have been involved in filming. There are shots out on the internet of them doing stuff very Doctor Who-like. Now, there's a couple of things we can talk about here, Rob, but, but I just want to pull back to a couple of months. where you may recall, I posed the question on one of our monthly podcasts, having seen Spider-Man No Way Home. Hmm. And having seen the audience just erupt with emotion when Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield appeared on screen. And I said, Rob, is Doctor Who going to try and get some Spider-Man No Way Home moments? Is this what's happening?
0: Oh, I think so. And I think you see that in the fan reactions. I mean, it's still up in the air as to who this tenant doctor is, I don't think it takes uh, an Einstein to work out that it could be a Doctor Jodie regenerates into or it could be the alternate universe sex doll Doctor who who has come back. And I I sort of arced up at that one i thought oh no how could that happen he doesn't have a tardis and we and we've seen in this filming already that he has a tardis but uh who won universal or or spiral scratches we used to know him on twitter very kindly showed me an outtake have you ever seen this outtake dave it's where the uh the tenant doctor is handing off the sex doll doctor to rose and saying you know go and have a good life and he hands him a piece of tardis coral and says you can grow a new tardis Now, this was never in the episode, but it was filmed. Is RTD working on that theory, given it's something he's already written and they've already filmed it in the past? Could that Doctor have his own TARDIS in the parallel universe?
1: I have seen that, but I'd completely forgotten about it. So, yes, that is definitely possible. Mm. Are we ignoring the Occam's razor here and say that it's just David Tennant playing the 10th Doctor in a multi-Doctor story?
0: Well possibly although the costume is very different right it's it's same same but different it's a tight suit but it's a tartan suit it's a long jacket but it's kind of a blue jacket not the tan colored jacket so i think it's trying to show that he is different somehow but is he different because jody has regenerated into him is he different because he's from another universe is he different because and, and look someone threw this out there they said what if that's the master <laughs> And the Master's regenerated into looking like Tenant, and he comes along and plays games with people because they think he is Tenant.
1: Oh, yes. What, what if it's an evil robot replica? Well,
0: there's four. There's four possibilities, Dave.
1: And we are in the age where everything now seems to be doing the multiverse. Yes. So maybe he's parallel Earth or parallel universe, Doctor. There, there are actually a lot of possibilities, but I do think, coming back to it, this is all about getting into that zeitgeist right now of let's get the nostalgia flowing let's get the cheers as david tenen walks back on screen Woo! um <laughs> maybe i'm being cynical but i do think that this is just so in that vibe at the moment
0: oh i think so and when you say parallel universe doctor you you're not meaning sextile parallel universe you're meaning just another parallel universe I guess. yes
1: like, like inferno
0: yeah yeah exactly so many possibilities who knows of course, we've got the actor Yasmin Finney playing a character called Rose. That's thrown people into a spin. Some people said, oh, you've recast Rose. They haven't recast Rose, folks. I think I'm pretty sure who, who uh, Rose actually is. I won't say on the podcast just in case people will be spoiled.
1: No, but I, th- I think we can say it is almost certainly a character named in honour of Rose.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: But yes, I was personally very excited to see Yasmin Finney's casting in the show, because like a number of our listeners and a number of our friends out there, and other friends who don't listen to our show, I was one who got very, very obsessed with Heartstopper. I thought it was an absolutely wonderful piece of television, uh, just so lovely, so British, so easy to watch, just a really good piece of television. Mm -hmm. And to see a member of the cast on that instantly going on to do something as big and high profile as Doctor Who was really exciting for me.
0: Oh yeah, RTD's finger is on the pulse when it comes to television, you know, with Shooty, now with Yasmin. He's picking people who are very popular and are so hot right now, as the kids might say. Speaking of Russell too, Dave, he's been on set, and I was commenting on Twitter that it's so good to see him in the trenches. He's he's getting in there, though, I think they're filming in Camden Market at the time, and RTD just shows up and he's getting around. And I'm like, yes, this is how you make Doctor Who. You're out in public. People are cheering. The showrunners marching around, posing for pictures, signing stuff. This is Doctor Who back. Oh, it just feels so different to the past five years. Oh, incredible. It certainly has added a certain energy to the whole thing. Hmm. Do you think it's overshadowed the shooty announcement, all this stuff going on? And if it has, is that a clever thing to do? Look, there's a couple of points I want to make in response to that, but the first and most important is that
1: Shooty will get his debut, and it will be big, and it will be special, and it will be dedicated to him. He's going to get an entire debut episode, and, and very possibly as well, at some point, we'll get a couple of little Easter eggs or a couple of moments. I mean, I mean. We all remember just the the, the hairs that stood up on the back of the neck when we got Peter Capaldi's, no, sir, all 13. You know, (laughs) Shooty might get a moment like that at some point where we're going to go, that's right, Shooty's coming. Then we'll get his debut episode, and there'll be a build-up to that. Millions will watch. We'll talk about it. He will get his moment, just as Jodie will get her finale. None of this overshadows Shooty, and it doesn't overshadow Jodie. Yes, there is excitement-building, for what, what is coming yeah absolutely those who maybe haven't as bought in as much to the Jodie Whittaker era as, as others are now getting back into fandom and finding a reason to, to find a new energy and a new, new excitement but Jodie will get her finale as well mm. and there will be build up we will watch it, others will watch it we'll talk about it they're going to happen and this is all just filler between those events
0: Well, my take is, I think it has overshadowed the announcement of Shooty, but I think that's a good thing, because we don't know a lot of stuff about Shooty yet, we don't know what he's going to wear, we don't know if he's going to have the blonde hair that he's sporting at the moment, or go back to black hair, will he have his moustache, will he not have his moustache? You know, he is kind of like in the distance, it's all sort of a bit hazy, but... The tenant stuff, there he is on set. He's in a tartan suit. He's got a TARDIS that looks like that. You know, <laughs> Wolf's in it. We know these things. And so I think fandom is getting more obsessed about stuff they really know, whereas Shooty is still a bit hazy. And I think that's okay. I think it's actually clever almost to say, yeah, Shooty's the new doctor, but look over there. And people are going to be looking over there at all the tenant stuff that's going on while Shooty will now be off possibly doing his. Um, costume stuff and possibly putting stuff together for the series it depends on when they're going to film shooty though it depends on when his series is coming out dave he might not be going out until say easter of 2024 if he's debuting in the uh special at the end of 2023
1: that's right he could be quite a way off and i think it's an open question as well as to whether we'll get that traditional regeneration at the end of a story from one doctor to another and Shooty will stand up and say something, you know, he'll quip yes. um, in, in some way. Or, or is it going to be a much more sort of open-ended, the doctor's regenerating, fade to black, or, you know, the doctor's gone off and somebody says, I don't know what's happening, fade to black. And then we open again with, you know, six months later and Shooty's the doctor. Mm. Um, th- th- there's a lot of possibilities given this feeling that rtd may be doing a bit of a soft reboot of some nature um a lot a lot of this is very much open to speculation but yes you're right we don't know a lot about shooty's doctor we don't even know if they're going to be the 14th doctor or the 15th or the 16th um you know that (laughs) remains an open question because you know these rumors have been speculated about do seem to be coming true Mm. and and the final point i just want to make on all of this that is the reaction to Shooty, which really hadn't happened at the time we recorded our last podcast on this, because we literally recorded about 20 minutes after he was announced. Yes. Just just to say that it has been incredibly positive. I think a lot of people uh, who are fans of the show are saying this could be a really good reset for the show. A lot of people who are fans of Shooty... But not fans of Doctor Who, I think, are now going, hey, what's this Doctor Who show? Where am I going to be watching mm-hmm. Shudi next? But also, one of our listeners pointed out a, a point that I think is really important and worth reiterating is that we just don't know anything about Shudi Gatwa's Doctor yet. And to assume that Shudi Gatwa will be playing the Doctor as Eric from Sex Education makes <laughs> as much sense as assuming that Peter Capaldi would have played the Doctor as Malcolm Tucker from uh, In the Loop and um, uh, uh, The Think of It.
0: But he did, Dave, for that first series. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that's another point, yes. Okay.
0: And mentioning that, I do love the Doctor Who poop account on Twitter that takes him out of sex education scenes and inserts him into Doctor Who scenes. That's always quite fun to watch at the moment. They do stuff like that. Oh, nice. I'll just simply say... I'd like a soft reboot from the point of view, I'd love Shooty to just come in and be the doctor, like Eccleston was in his first story, rather than, oh, I've regenerated, I'm so groggy, oh, I'm pretending to be William Hartnell, oh, you know, and all that kind of nonsense. I'd love him just to blaze in and just do it, you know?
1: I, I would too. I, I am very, very much over regeneration stories. I want, as you say, that that Christopher Eccleston strong opening, and maybe even, you know, we then get a flashback to the regeneration or something. I think that would be quite cool.
0: Yeah. Dave, shall we move on to short topics?
1: Well, a short topic is an extension of the news a bit on this occasion, although it's really not not that much news. But days after we did our last monthly podcast, Doctor Who magazine released an issue that had a very lengthy, really quite raw, I think, interview with Chris Chibnall talking about his time as the showrunner and really sort of looking back in a real valedictory sense at, at what he'd done. Now, as I said to you before we recorded Rob, I'm I'm not proposing to really go down that rabbit hole in a lot of detail because it's been covered a lot. There are a lot of Twitter accounts that have quoted huge chunks of that. It's there to be found if you want to read the whole thing and and it is now about 4 weeks old, it probably a bit longer by the time this goes out. But the thing that struck me the most, and I'll ask you in a moment, Rob, what struck you the most, but mm-hmm. the thing that struck me the most was just how much there wasn't a master plan behind all this and how much we were looking for clues, for Easter eggs, for for plot threads to come back and be joined together. And very clearly, this wasn't Chibnall's intent. He He sort of wrote... As he went along, he made it up as he went along. He changed direction wherever he wanted to change direction. And, and that's fine. You know, other showrunners have done the same thing as actors and actresses want to come and go and and, and all the rest of that. But I now look back at our viewing of the chimney era and going right back to something like the Ghost Monument where we were talking about uh, are these Easter eggs that are being dropped or are these pointers to more stuff that's going on right back to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the, the answer is a very clear and emphatic no. Yeah. Which means, where does that leave the whole Timeless Child thing? Which, let's face it, is is something rightly or wrongly that Chiminal Zero will be remembered for, good or bad. Does that mean that we should not expect all these loose ends that we've talked about for many months, Rob, not to be tied up?
0: Quite possibly, Dave. (laughs) Quite possibly is the simple answer. Uh, He's not going to try a a Rise of Skywalker-type episode after all, it seems. Or he'll quite surprise me if he does. Yeah. Because, yeah, so much of this has been so slapdash for the uh, for the Tasman fans. No, it wasn't a plan all along. No matter how much you might say it on Twitter, it was not the plan. <laughs> you know, he even comments that he's he's seen the Tasman sort of stuff emerge and that was sort of something that just happened later on in the writing. Uh, he talks about the Battle of the Cat who walked across my keyboard and says, it, it was a first draft, you know. So when we've said on the podcast, this feels like a first draft. We weren't actually wrong, Dave. <laughs> That's yeah. freaking amazing.
1: Yeah, it 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 really is. So look, in some ways, this has kind of reassured me a bit about the the final Jody special because the thing that I think we were most concerned about was. All the things that he would have to tie up and all the plot threads that need to be sorted whilst bringing in all these guest stars and whilst giving Jodie a finale and whilst hopefully having a good adventure plot. And look, I guess we just have to accept that those plot threads probably won't be joined up. The the, the Timeless Child might well have had its resolution. The, the dropping of the watch down into the TARDIS was the full stop of that story and look, yes. we, we can debate at length after we've seen the special if that was a good thing or not but at least it perhaps reassures us the special will have more space to tell a good story
0: yeah and speaking of the special i'm hearing it's one and a half hours well the five doctors was so that's mm. not unprecedented mm. so there, there could be some uh, some good stuff in there and it may it may let some of these characters breathe because we're saying, oh, gosh, they're bringing back this one and this one and this one and this one. And how are they all going to have something to do? Well, the length might allow them to do it.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely possible that they could be it, but, but I think it's that's, that's perhaps reframed a little bit my understanding of the Whitaker era. Uh, and the final point I just want to pick up on is your comment there about Chibnall sort of saying, I ran out of time. I only got to do first drafts of some some episodes. And look, I don't know if I've been, I'm being too judgmental here. And please tell me if you think I am. And I extend that invitation, listeners, to you as well. We're all used to stories of the 60s and the 70s and even the 80s of the time running out and the budget running out. And that, though, was making... 26 or in the case of the 60s 50 episodes a year on no budget and when the unions turn the lights off at 10 p.m if you hadn't finished regardless Mm. it has baffled me and this this goes right back to the rtd era when people say oh was there enough time to get all the scripts done was there enough time to?" you had a year yeah to do 13 scripts in the case of chibnall six scripts yeah um um even going back to the battle of wherever it was what was that 11 or 12 in that season
0: They were down to 10 for those.
1: Well, they're down to 10 by then. So I don't understand how you run out of time to do 10 scripts when you've got more than a year's worth of planning to do. Maybe there are realities of modern television making that I don't appreciate. And if that's the case, I'm genuinely interested in being educated about this. Uh, My my final comment is that just like I'm fascinated to read the tell-all book about the Moffat years in 20 years' time, uh, in 25 years' time the real tell-all book of what was going on during the Chibnall era, I think will throw a lot of light onto some stuff that we just don't appreciate or understand what's happening right now.
0: Yeah, but I don't think it can be written by him. I because No no no. When, no, because no. no, when I read this, he he sets up some strange straw man type stuff in the piece. Like he says, uh, in 2017, I found it hilarious when people were going, why are there now Three Companions? I was thinking, this is part of the show's original format. And I stop and think, if I think back to 2017, people weren't so much denying that it was part of the show's original format. I think we all knew that. We were saying it doesn't work. You know, Three Companions worked in the 60s. By Davos' era, it wasn't working so well. Why would you try and do it decades on from Davos' era? That's what people were saying. They they weren't asking why haven't our three companions, but he, he frames the, the conversation as that's what people were saying. And it's like, "Mm, straw man there.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of that. And I'll I'll say that I found reading the interview in turns frustrating and in turns insightful. Yes. And I think I'll leave it there.
0: All right, I'll pick out one more quote because I I picked out several, but I'll I'll just go with this one, Dave. And it's not where he says that Jody is a a Troughton-esque doctor, which which just made me laugh. Uh, It's the one that says, The thing I wanted to dispel was the sense there was a locked-in fixed myth and that the only stuff that counts is what's been on screen. I wanted it to feel like the story could get much bigger than this, and I wanted to expand the on-screen universe to create the sense you could have as many Doctors as you want. You can tell stories on a much bigger canvas if you're not worrying about how many Doctors there are. It broadens everything, and it challenges your central character. And I thought, that's fine, but to what end? Unless you actually do something with it, and, I mean, the, the, the one thing he's done with it, he got the Joe Martin Doctor as a sort of a cameo in two stories, you know, and that wasn't much at all. If you don't actually do anything with it, it doesn't really add up to a hill of beans. There's not much point to doing it. You, sure, you can say, oh, there's a thousand doctors out there, but unless we meet them, what does it actually mean, Dave?
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm halfway with you there. I, I do agree with his intent. And it's an intent that many other showrunners and producers and script editors have, have had along the years about how do you hint that there's more behind a character that's nearly 60 years old. Um, did he do it in a particularly effective way? Some will say yes, some will say no. But you mentioned the the Joe Martin Doctor. Yeah. He has very clearly said that he does not have a set place where she fits in. So all of these stuff where we're trying to put together the clues and go... Where does this Doctor fit in? Is it, is it pre-Hartnell? Is it season 6B? Is it a Doctor in the future? Oh, this doesn't... Actually, she's got a police box TARDIS, so it can't be this. And mm. There is no answer.
0: No. I find that annoying. I,
1: I, I find that in turns annoying and fascinating. Right. Um. um I just perhaps wish that I knew that when I first saw it, that this this was going to be a mystery and I wasn't hunting for clues trying to, put, trying to put it down. It's going to be interesting when we go back and watch the Whittaker era or, or at least the Joe Martin episodes and see if this, this knowledge and understanding of where Chibnall's head was changes our perception of that plot arc.
0: Or does it just make it feel meaningless?
1: Or, or does it make it feel meaningless? It, it, it's a genuine question that I'm, I'm open to finding out
0: yeah yeah no it's a, it's a really interesting thing I personally I find it careless I, I think it's a very easy way to write if you're just throwing out wild ideas and they don't actually have to pay off or you know loop it back around to do anything I, I think that's a very easy way to write and I don't like it myself
1: how is JJ Abrahamson lost
0: <laughs> <laughs> well exactly yeah exactly Dave, let's wrap it up there because we have got season one to talk about. We have. Yeah. Now, as we said at the start of the show, this was voted by you, the listeners, uh, overwhelmingly so, for us to talk about season one, not series one, season one, which ran from November 63 to September of 1964. My God.
1: That's a long time ago.
0: It's a long, long time ago. It's a long, long time to be on TV every week at Tea Time. Amazing. Now, Dave, maybe we should start off with some initial thoughts on the season before we get into the stories themselves?
1: Sure. So, look, I'm going to sort of save any um, assessments until the end or at least until we can start teasing them out in the individual stories because we have got a lot of stories in which we have the time to tease out how we feel about this season except to say look i I think that our listeners are probably aware that i'm a fan of the era so they probably Mm -hmm. won't be that surprised what i make of this season
0: there's been a lot of comments on twitter like oh won't dave be loving recording this episode won't dave be into this yeah well well,
1: i won't spoil it we'll see how (laughs) i feel about these stories in a moment what what i am what i am going to say though is this was definitely a season that i came to incredibly piecemeal and in many, many different ways. Yeah. Uh, I think the first story from the season I saw was a very bad copy of the Aztecs at a Doctor Who club meeting in Melbourne in 1987. I think I then would have seen the Daleks at another club meeting. and I can remember being very excited when I saw that they were going to show the Daleks at this meeting, probably about 1989, 1990, and, and, and watching it for the first time I remember seeing The Edge of Destruction at a club meeting. Uh, I I remember seeing a very dodgy copy that somebody dubbed for us of The Censorite some years later. Mm -hmm. So so these are stories that I really came to very piecemeal. And and, and it's not a season I've really before taken the time to watch the whole thing from end to end, because that is quite an undertaking. Mm -hmm. So it was very interesting to see it done in that way. And I think I'll leave it there and ask what do you think going into this
0: well to, to riff on what you were saying there I'd say the first episode I saw of this season isn't actually in this season because it's the pilot episode the genuine pilot episode that never aired on tv that was the first Hartnell I ever saw Dave I
1: think that that was a story that I heard before I saw it, because there, there were obviously a number of these stories that, as I've discussed before, back in the 80s, the local Doctor Who club had an audio department where they had dubs of, mm. of the various stories rather than videos. And so I think the pilot I did see, sorry, I did hear before I saw it when it came out on the, uh, the Hartnell Years tape.
0: Right okay yeah well I saw that at a local club gathering probably at the same local club gathering I think we saw Edge of Destruction so I think the the pilot episode and Edge of Destruction were the first I saw and then again it's piecemeal I saw these all over the place and some of them not until they were on BBC video uh in the 90s.
1: Yes no absolutely so um and, and in the case of the, the Reign of Terror I'm sure we'll discuss it when we get there but I didn't see the animation of those episodes until they were made only a few years ago.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I will add, though, that this is a season I don't watch all that often. I don't reach for black and whites a whole lot. And not because I don't like them, Dave. Some of my fondest Doctor Who memories are of reading these stories as target novels, for example, and I really love history and the Hartnell era is chock full of historicals and mm. and, and all of that. So it's, it's not some issue with any of that. It's not an issue with them being in black and white because I happily watch black and white film and black and white uh, TV shows all the time. It's just more that when I have a chance to watch Doctor Who and it's a rare chance that I do, I go for Comfort Doctor Who, and it's often stuff from when I was becoming a fan, like it's Colin or it's Sylvester. It's not even Davo. I mean, I love Davo, but I tend to slip on Colin and Sylvester. So this era is one that I don't go back to a whole lot. So it was really great that listeners said, go and watch season one, Rob and Dave. And I had to I had to go and watch it in order. I really enjoyed the experience.
1: Fantastic. Now, mm. do you want to start with story one or shall I?
0: Look, I'll, I'll rip in, Dave, because um, we need to get this out of the way that this, this is where it all starts and, yes, the first episode is fab, but the rest of it, not so much. I mean, the cliffhangers are good across the entire story. You've got the, the caveman shadow, I guess, on the TARDIS at the end of part one. You've got... What, they're trapped in the Cave of Skulls the end of Part 2? Yes,
1: they've all been split open.
0: Yes, and, and I particularly like the end of Part 3 where they, they're going to get back to the TARDIS and then suddenly they can't. Their way to it is blocked. That's all really good stuff, but in between just the machinations within the tribe and wanting to make fire, oh, it's all a bit boring to me, to be honest... And I don't know if we're doing scores now yet or are we leaving those till the end? Let's
1: leave them to the end of each story. um, Because, look, I've I've got a couple of points I want to make. Uh, The first, I think, most important point that just fascinates me Mm -hmm. is watching part one particularly of this story and realising just how much of what we think of as Doctor Who was there right from the very, very start and how much... Yeah. they got right right from the start the opening credits the opening t- music
0: mm-hmm. the
1: tARDIS police box the console room the sound effects like the dematerialization effect as as one example all of that stuff that we think of as being uh, fundamental to the, the 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 look and sound and feel of the show mm-hmm. was created by these guys in 1963 and has lasted and and i find that just incredible even the nature of the Doctor, although I'm going to talk a lot about how the Doctor evolves over this season as we move story to story,
0: mm-hmm.
1: aspects of the Doctor's character arrive here ready to go. Other aspects are are, are shaped and evolved over time, but, but the Doctor is a recognisable character in An Unearthly Child. And I find that really, really fascinating. Uh, look, conventional wisdom about An Unearthly Child is probably quite similar to what you just expressed, which mm-hmm. is that the first episode's absolutely staggeringly amazing and the other three are terrible, <laughs> I, I will agree that the first episode is staggeringly amazing and it's a really mysterious piece of television that's been done in a really effective way. I, I And look, the other three aren't as mind-blowing as that, but I do find them very, very positive because what I see in that story is a four-episode story about how we got the game together and you need to have that movement from who are you, why are you in my ship, I'm kidnapping you, through mm-hmm. to fear makes companions of us all. And, and and that sense of, well, we've all got to work together to survive where we are. I, I think that that actually works really, really well. I think that there is some interesting characterization within the tribe there. I think it looks pretty good. And, mm-hmm. and and watching it again for this, where I was really making a point to watch it, not to sort of, you know, look at the phone or look at an email or make dinner while it was on. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. as we said before, when I watch stuff for the podcast, I, I watch it. Yeah. And remembering that the direction on this is not people cutting a whole bunch of film together with all the different takes and all the different shots and all the different angles to make a piece of television. It's a director saying to the vision mixer, scene, change, scene, change. And somebody Mm. with a great big lever switching from camera to camera. And as he switches from camera A to camera B, camera A is moving around to where the next shot is and then it gets switched back to camera A. And we're watching one take, from multiple angles all being mixed in the camera yeah as they go i mean that is that is a remarkable achievement
0: yeah and i think even doctor who fans who tend to know more about how tv is made than fans of just about any other uh show even a lot of them wouldn't know these days that that's how it was done Ah, so I think you bring up a really great point there. It was an amazing achievement. You think of modern shows like 30 Rock when they would do a a live show and they'd be rushing from set to set and cutting from camera to camera. It's like that, except they were doing this every week for the best part of a year. Oh my God.
1: Yes, and that does lend a a level of authenticity to the performances, particularly I think William Hartnell's performance when you, you see this conversation and it's one stream of, Speech from angle to angle. It's it's really really effective. Uh, so for that reason, I am giving an unearthly child a B plus.
0: Okay, that's including the other episodes, the all the episodes, the whole thing, the whole story, the whole thing. Ooh, if I had to split it, Dave. I'm giving it a five out of ten if we're talking about the whole story, or an eight out of ten if it's just the first episode.
1: I think both of those scores are a little bit harsh. <laughs> Um, you know, if, if you ask me just to give the first episode a, a a mark, I would say it's an A+. There is nothing I would do better in that. Um, wow. I think the whole thing comes out to a B plus. Okay. I'll then lead off with The Daleks.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: this is a story that I'm very, very fond of. I think it's a really good adventure. We've spoken before of how much I love Terry Nation. What was interesting to me watching this, though, was appreciating even more just how much this is both a seven-part Doctor Who story and seven one-part stories, particularly when you look at the titles, The, the Dead Planet, The Survivors, mm-hmm. The Rescue, um, the, um, the Expedition. You know, they're, they're all little self-contained stories that all add up to something bigger. And mm-hmm. for all of the talk, and, and look, I get it, when people watch part one of The Daleks and they say, well, now this would all be done in the cold open. And you go look. Yes, you could do all of that. From the TARDIS isn't working. Through to let's explore the city in in the inner Open. I get that. Mm-hmm. But what we would lose is just that wonderful atmospheric exploration of a dead world. They've they've arrived and they find a petrified forest and they find a dead metal creature. They find mm-hmm. flowers and there's somebody in the forest and there's something going on and. Then they find a city and and I just love the taking the time to build up this world and explore it. I love later on, we get whole moments where the files sit around and discuss the meaning of their existence and discuss genuine existential matters. We we get Ian really becoming an important character in the series right here, having philosophical debates about the value or lack of value of pacifism and when it's right to take up arms and when it's not. Mm. That that is explored in a way that it wouldn't be done otherwise. And it's all done within this remarkable production. The design of the Daleks, the model work of the city, the design of the petrified jungle. that, That shot of the doctor and his companions looking down at a giant alien city is just, for 1963 staggeringly good and that's before we go into a swamp done in a tiny television studio with, with 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 great big monsters and mountains and crevices canyons like i'm just amazed at how effective and good this looks whilst telling mm-hmm. a good adventure uh, you allowed me very generously to talk a bit at length in one <laughs> go without interruption rob so i will uh, allow you to to pick it up
0: Ah, no problem Look, I think this episode, like the previous story Allows us to really get a sense of Ian and Barbara in particular being Oh, they're suddenly out of their time And they're suddenly, you know, having these adventures in time and space And it's almost in a way that we don't really get to feel with later companions And I'm not sure why that is Possibly it's because it's new to the Doctor to have companions along too Apart from Susan you know and it, and everyone sort of feeling their way and i find that really fascinating in in the previous story and this story it feels very realistic and it's a shame in the modern era we don't pick up a new companion and really have the same sense of them being just so amazed that they're out of time. You know, companions are almost too cool for school now. Like, oh, yeah, the TARDIS is bigger inside. Great. Oh, yeah, we went back in time. Great. I met William Shakespeare. Great. Whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this sort of gives us a different sort of feel, which I really like. But the, I'm going
1: to... Sorry, can I, I, just, I just want to expand on one point there while you're, you're mentioning it, which is that conversation that they have, Ian and Barbara, where Barbara finally accepts that they're on another world. And, mm-hmm. and she's in, in her mind, she's like... It it could be Earth, it could be... No, we're not there, and Ian's like, no, I know we're not there, but, you know, we've just got to accept this. That is such a human thing, and you're right, we don't get to see it with most companions.
0: No, that's right. Now, having said all that, I'm going to commit heresy here, Dave, because I don't think the Daleks is that great. I do think it's too long. I wouldn't chop down the first episode, though. I'd let the mystery play out. But some of the other episodes, maybe, I'd trim a bit the Daleks aren't very dynamic you know being stuck to the city like they are in this one there is a lot of wandering around and talking the flip side of that coin is you saying oh look they're debating you know when do you take up arms and fight and all of that sort of stuff so I'm sort of looking at the other side of the coin here conceptually it's interesting though what's happened in this place is interesting and the Dalek design is amazing to this day and and yes it kicks off the whole Dalek thing so I I, I get why people go on about this story but it's never really genuinely thrilled me all that much and I sometimes wonder do other fans feel this way or am I the Lone Ranger on this sometimes I feel like the Lone Ranger look I've certainly heard
1: feedback over the years that this is a great four-part story followed by a weaker three-part story Mm -hmm. um I I disagree because I watch it and I feel for it as seven one-part stories Okay. And, 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 and yes, you could do the escape in five minutes if you wanted to. And, and let's face it, the, te- the, the movie did. But, but, mm-hmm. but that to me was one little adventure. Um, I, I, so, so I find it really interesting. And, and I find that it works really, really well in that sense. You're, you're right, the Daleks here are not the Daleks we come to see. This is the Daleks designed for a one-off appearance. And they do have to be reinvented later on. So I I get what you're saying there. Uh, The final point I just wanted to make is we get some really unusual cliffhangers here because they're not what we've become used to of these real sort of moments of peril. Ah, themes crashes in. They're very very sort of thoughtful moments of, okay, where's this coming next? I, I, I love the whole idea of Susan's not actually in peril. But she knows she's got to go back through the forest, and if she doesn't, mm. her friends will die, fade to black. I, I love this idea of they've now escaped from their prison cell. Are they going to escape from the city as a little claw comes out from under the cape, fade to black. I think it's really, really Mm-mm. effective. So look, I'm I'm a fan of this one.
0: Mm, what's your score?
1: I'm going with an A.
0: An hey, A. I'm going with a six out of ten.
1: Oh, that hurts. <laughs> That hurts.
0: Things are going to pick up, Dave, don't worry.
1: Well, we've got the Edge of Destruction next, Rob, so what did you make of that one?
0: Well, actually, things might not pick up here. (laughs) Earlier, I told the story of seeing this at the local fan group, and probably a year or two after that, around 88, 89, the novelisation came out, and I read that and really loved it. And it was probably five years, maybe ten years, before I went back to the show itself, And I had these memories that, oh, yes, I've seen this and I've read the novel and it was great. And I was really surprised at how I actually didn't like it as much as I thought I did. And I had that sort of feeling this time around as well when I came to it. I mean, the basic story is there that I remember from the novel, but the acting is really wooden and very stage play like I mean we, we talk about these things being done Like stage plays in general But this one it's really wooden Really stage play like Did they rehearse this one at all? It's an interesting premise But when you actually watch it Yeah it's not the best So something that I, I kind of loved as a novel I really didn't like re-watching it again now I just Oh Dave the acting in this <laughs> I can't get around it
1: it's really interesting you say that. I know that the director changed halfway through this story. and Given it's only two episodes, that means that each director didn't do a lot. Mm-hmm. I think this lurches between the cringe and the brilliant in, in right. equal measure. But carried over that, as you said, is a very strong premise and a very strong story. I think this is an important thing that the series needed because it it so starts to establish a bit more what this machine is is, what the TARDIS is, how it works, the power that it it has, I think is really important. It's the story that turns us from four disparate people, maybe two pairs, two disparate pairs travelling together to to now we've got a crew that are travelling together. And those two speeches between the Doctor and Barbara, if if we said that Ian really came into his own in the Daleks, I think this is where Barbara comes into her own. The, 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 The first one where she turns to him and said, you know, you should get down on your knees and thank us is a really powerful moment. And then for the doctor to come back an episode later and say, I apologize, you were right. Yeah. Counters that that really, really well. So there's lots of good moments in there. Then there's stuff where I don't know what William Russell is doing. I don't know what the director's (laughs) told him to do, but he's doing something bizarre. I think Caroline Ford, you know, she's been told, go look mysterious and then throw some scissors at the couch. What do you do as an actress at that point? Um, mm. And I think she does what she she has to with that. There are moments that are really genuinely eerie and bizarre. The clock face melting, the doors opening, um, the shadow. You know, there's really good stuff. And then there's just kind of stuff that doesn't quite work. But over it all, there's a really good premise that I think builds up the tension really well. And I loved even more as a kid, but I still love that the resolution is a simple a simple one just a, a technological fault um, mm. i think that's really effective so i give this a b
0: i give it a four out of ten
1: interesting
0: until this rewatch i think that would have been higher but actually sitting there and concentrating and not looking at my phone not doing other things just concentrating on it i thought oh god i don't think this is good
1: what did you think of hartnell's monologue in part two as the console room gets darker around him
0: i thought that was good and I think Hartnell in general, you have you have the sense that he's cottoned on to what's happening uh, in that second episode.
1: Yes, I was very interested to see that he cottons on a lot earlier than I sort of remember. It's not this rushed conclusion in the last five minutes. It's him putting it together and then mm. they've got to fix the plan. And then they've got to actually resolve the damage they've done to each other's relationships yeah. in everything. And, and they take the time to do that. So I, I, I find that more effective than you did. Okay. So, Rob, that brings us on to Marco Polo. Now, before I lead off the discussion on that, I'll just ask you, this is obviously the only completely missing story in Season 1, which is in itself amazing that we have so much of this season, but how did you digest this story?
0: This time around, for the complete story, I read the Target novel, but I did go back onto Daily Motion, that low-rent version of YouTube, and looked at some tele snap reconstructions. Some of them even with colorized tele snaps, which was quite a fun way to do it. Yes, and
1: I don't think they're colorized. I think they were color photos.
0: Oh, okay. I know there are color photos from the set. I didn't know if all the images though were color photos from the set, or whether some had been colored. True, true. That,
1: sure. that, that 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 is true. I can't be sure they all were. Uh, I I watched the Daily Motion, or well, oh sorry, I watched on Daily Motion the Loose Cannon. Uh, reconstructions of the stories, which is something I very rarely do, uh, but I have listened to the the CDs many, many times. And the reason for that is, look, I'm not going to bury the lead. This, for me, is a top 10 Doctor Who story of all time. Uh, mm-hmm. If you want to hear me wax lyrical about this at considerable length, I invite you to listen to the episode of All of Time and Space, where I was uh, very happy to guest star and talk about Marco Polo on their fourth episode. Mm-hmm. I think that this is Doctor Who at its absolute best. Just to reel off a few of the reasons why. This is a genuinely epic adventure. This is an adventure that goes from the Himalayas through the desert to Peking and, and beyond, all in the 13th century. How they thought they would pull that off, I don't know, but somehow the director and the designers did because it looks absolutely gorgeous. Now, yes, in 1964, you can get away with things like very small bits of set being suggestive of more. You can get away with painted backdrops that that Mm. are going to look more realistic if you're doing um, much more primitive television and much more primitive filming than you could if you're watching it on on a large, you know, flat-screen TV. But they still evoke all of these location so effectively well we get doctor who's first great villain to garner who is wonderfully charming and wicked uh, that that moment at the end of part two where he, he he does the here's water marco polo come for it and then just pours it into the desert callously i just think you know that's a really great villainous moment and then you get his cliffhanger at the end of part six where he's just swinging the sword and come come mm. just very calm very charming It is written in a really lyrical way. I can listen to this soundtrack and this dialogue again and again and again. I think it's Susan's best story of the first season and and this is a story where I think she really comes into her own and and, and finds the character much more than she has in the past. The education remit is there. As as a fan and lover of history, that's all there. There are characters. The Doctor is now becoming that softer, not soft, but softer character. There's just wonderful creations in a wonderful world that feels real to me. And I love it so much. Uh, tell me why you didn't like it, Rob.
0: <laughs> I really like this one, Dave. Oh, good. Just picking up on Susan, she's really helped along by Ping Cho here, yes. I think. Tagana, you mentioned him being like you know quite charming, quite a villain on screen. He comes across so flat in the book, now that I reread it. He's just like a brutish bad guy in the book. He's nothing like what he is on screen that's interesting
1: yeah it's it probably comes down a lot to both the way that Darren Nesbitt plays him and the way that Waris Hussain directed the character I think I think that yeah you're right they they build it all up a lot Mark Eden playing Marco Polo again I think adds stuff to that I can't remember the name of the actor playing Kubla Khan but he makes that character work um it's it's perfectly brilliantly cast
0: yeah so look I'm not saying anything profound or even new for this podcast when I talk about this one being the lost story, I think I'd probably most like to see, or at least see an episode or two from. There's been a rumor going around that some episodes are being held to ransom in the Middle East, and this is one of them. But I digress. It's the sets, Dave, you've mentioned those. It's the epic journey, you've mentioned that. And again, it's Ian and Barbara, uh, this time around, having a cool adventure in their planet's past. I'm discounting the the caveman romp back in the first story. Yeah this is the first time they go to an era and meet a real person from history and that's really cool to see too so as we sort of see them evolve from you know not not quite believing that they've traveled through time and space through to here and they're meeting marco polo like wow you know so this is this is a great great story and i will give it a good score don't you worry
1: yeah yeah it's really interesting watching this now compared to historical stories even of of the Whittaker era, but even later on in Doctor Who as well. The fact that Marco is just talking to them and he says, well, I'm an explorer and I left Venice in 1270-something. And Barbara Mm. says, oh, you must be Marco Polo. Mm. And everyone else goes, oh, of course he is. And... Everyone assumes that the audience knows enough history to go, Oh, that's Marco Polo. He's the guy that went from Venice to China and did all that sort of stuff. There there isn't one of those well, of course, as you probably aren't aware, Ian, Marco Polo was. Like yes. you know, we don't do that in the sixties because people had a proper education at school and studied history at school. Correct. So correct you know, that's that's really interesting, but but we also get those, you know, educational moments about how condensation's formed and how where the word assassin comes from and, and yeah, all that yeah. sort of thing. That's that's really quite obvious. But but again Yes, you could do this at a faster pace, but something like the scene—I think it's in part two—where Tagana offers to play chess with them, and there's all that dialogue between Marco and Tagana and Barbara and Ian about where chess came from and the the undertones of chess, and even the little lines you know from Tagana: "Can you save your king, Marco?" Which means a whole lot more than just "Can you win the game of chess?" Yes, it's it's so cleverly done. It's absolutely. Um, it's absolutely epic, it really is
0: mm, Oh yeah And Dave, I know I've written off something like the Daleks for its length in this very podcast And here Marco Polo is the same length But I think it's better And I think it's because of the historical angle Here where it's historical and I'm really into the characters and, and the journey I can go with it So that's why I'm I'm cool with this one and not the other Even though they're both long stories And
1: what did you give it?
0: I give it, Dave, an 8 out of 10
1: I'm giving it an A+.
0: Yeah, very good. Which brings me to The Keys of Marinus, a story I've had a soft spot for since the early Foxtel days here in Australia. Uh, To people overseas, that might not mean a lot, but that was basically cable television, and they had a UK TV channel that would show uh, tons and tons of Doctor Who uh, in order, and they started with the Hartnell era, so I was taping this, you know... (laughs) Like there was no tomorrow And I've had a soft spot for Keys of since then And my sense is that it's become quite popular in fandom over time A decade or two back I'm not sure it was a particularly popular story It was just like, eh, the Keys it,
1: it was the Terry Nation without the Daleks one
0: that's it whereas now i think it's quite popular and i've i always put it down to and this isn't profound by any means the nature of the the travel in the story from setting to setting much like the chase that keeps it fresh because this is a longer story i guess although some episodes it's got to be said have far more interesting premises than others the early stuff you know where they're they're in uh, a and there's the the dirty, the dirty cup, but the doctor thinks it's a, a great piece of scientific, you know, equipment. That's all really fascinating stuff, and only Barbara can see the truth, and all oh, that's good. The stuff with Ian on trial, I think, is very, very good. But then you get to an episode like the, the trapper with his furs and the ice caves and all that, and I'm not really into that episode, so it does have some ups and downs. But overall, I think this is a pretty good story. I quite like it.
1: Yeah, look, I enjoyed it as well. I think it's a ripping little adventure. Uh, Once again, we just have to call out how they thought they could ever pull off six different stories in six different alien locations on their budget, yet somehow they do it. I mean, that that opening model of um, Arbatan's Island Mm -hmm. is a really effective model. It is. And, and they get to do a whole lot of really good stuff. Look, not not all the effects work. I think the um, Barbara completely fails to smash up the Morphoton brains at the end of part two. Yes, um, that's quite funny. Um, interesting. Which episodes you said were the weaker ones for you? I I look. I agree. The Morphoton episode is probably the the pick of the bunch. Um, but I really like the ice episode. I think Vasil's a really nasty villain, and he, he's he's quite. Avaricious and quite quite villainous in a very simplistic way, and and I kind of like that imagery of the frozen warriors and the wolves on the tundra and everything. I, I think that works quite well. The the plant one I think just basically barely justifies its length, but couldn't go any longer. Mm. I like Ian on trial, but I think the fact that it goes for one and a half episodes does outstay its welcome a little bit. Mm. And um, although it probably wasn't as big a cliche in nineteen sixty four as it is now, the whole Hang on! Nobody told her that we were missing Susan. Like that—that that feels very detective story cliche. Now it probably wasn't as much, but it, but that does kind of reflect the uh, the Terry Nation background of sort of writing all these hard boiled detective stories and and that sort of police procedurals and where he will do a lot of work that that comes into it. I think it works quite well. There there are highs and there are lows. There are great alien worlds.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's an adventure that that just keeps ripping along. Really nicely, but the point that's very interesting, and that seems really grating to us now as fans of what Doctor who has become, is that moment where Arbufan says, "I need your help, please. Will you help me?" Fade to black, and as they're walking back to the TARDIS, nah, I feel bad we couldn't help him, but oh well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know that 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 is very very strange to watch now because that wouldn't happen now, and it it shows that these are still travellers who basically just trying to get these two teachers back to
0: earth yeah there's a few times across this season where it's like ah oh, i don't like the look of this let's just go back to the ship and leave <laughs> <laughs> you know there's no sense that oh we've, we better fix things or you know any of that stuff yeah well, you're quite well, right. Wouldn't well, happen
1: well not long. yet but the, that, that moment is coming
0: indeed it is score wise i reckon we're going to be quite close on this one dave
1: uh, well, look, I think it's very, very good. I really enjoy it. Uh, the highs are very high. The lows are a little bit lower. All up, I have to give it a B plus.
0: Seven out of ten. Today. Very close, then. Very yeah, I think, close. I think it's our closest.
1: I think so, so far. Will we be close on the Aztecs? We're, we're, we're more than halfway through the season now, but still got a couple of stories to go. We are back in history. Uh, we are in a different location. Interesting that in both of these episodes. We don't have a European location, mm-hmm. uh, certainly not a British location, which I think is interesting. I said that Tagana was the first great villain of Doctor Who. Well, Tatoxel has to be the second. And, yeah. and if anything, an even more complex villain here, because this is a guy who, it's implied, actually doesn't believe all of the stuff that he's spouting about mm. gods and sacrifices. He just knows how to put on a show to maintain political power. And that's a really interesting idea for a villain. And it's balanced with the character of Ortlock, who loses his faith over the course of the the story but goes in a different direction. Again you've got these wonderful epic backgrounds that scenes of the Doctor and Kameka in the garden which And now that we've sort of restored these episodes onto DVD quality and you can see the detail of the temples and the buildings mm. in the background of those sets, when you see the view from the top of the temple down into the city and, and and I have stood at the top of a temple and looked down into the square of an Aztec city and it looks exactly like that. That, that is absolutely magnificent. Mm. The moments between the Doctor and Barbara are exquisite. They're, they're just wonderful, wonderful moments. The moments between Barbara and Totoxel uh, are are really good. I, I quoted on Twitter the other night that that little scene between them, you know, how shall a man know his gods? By the signs of their divinity. What if thieves walk among the gods? Indeed, then how shall a man know? You know, it's just really Shakespearean dialogue. I I love the way that the Doctor is here still shouting at Barbara and telling her what he can't do and you've got, to, you've got to behave and follow my rules and then instantly now knows that he's gone too far and pulls it back and apologises. It now doesn't take him an episode to get to apologise. He now knows already that he's going too far, but, he, but he's recognised. You can see the Doctor evolving there. I just think it's stunning. I really do.
0: Yeah, it, it is a solid story, Dave, and people always name-check the Aztecs when they talk about this season, and that's because it's good. That's why people name-check stuff. You know, no surprises here. Uh, aside from an overly long fight scene in two different episodes, <laughs> that sort of pads those episodes out, this is a really well put together story that moves along quite well. You mentioned the Doctor and Kamika. Their scenes in the garden mm-hmm. are, are great, they feel quite realistic almost. But you know what always gets me in this story? Mm-hmm. It's when Ian goes into that water course and the guy comes along and moves the hatchback into place because he knows the Doctor can't shift it, but the Doctor at the same time can't say, oh, look, my pal's in there. Don't do that. Yes. Uh, and you think, oh, hell, this would be a horrible way to go, <laughs> you know, being drowned in this, uh, you know, water, water course sort of thing. I I always watch that and get a bit tense when I'm watching it. Yeah, so the, the sets on this wonderful... Uh, Barbara is very confident from the get-go, I mean, it, it, it does seem to be very quick from where she puts that bracelet on her arm to when the rest of them come out of the TARDIS and she's already sort of set up uh, as, yes. as as being this uh this uh, messenger of the God sort of thing. But... I can go with it, and I think Barbara is is really just well well sorted in this. She's she's just on top of a game and mixing it up with everyone. Doesn't take a step backwards. Really good writing for her. This is very much her story. I think
1: absolutely. It is a story in which every character gets to keep their dignity in one way or the other. Mm. Um, you know, Totoxil doesn't lose. He he maintains his role in society, but he's learned a lesson. Ortlock has lost his role, but maintained his dignity. Barbara was proved to have failed in her mission, but but he's seen as somebody who did something worth trying. It, it, it's really wonderful. I, I think you're right. The Doctor and Kamaker is a wonderful little dynamic there, and the, the moment when he goes back for her brooch is just a lovely, touching moment that you know doesn't mm. need Murray Gold to tell us it's touching. It just nah. it just <laughs> is. Um, you mentioned the fight scenes, and look, I, I agree that they are quite long, but I just want to come back to that point we mentioned during an Unearthly Child remember that was all being done as live with the camera cutting between and, and moving mm-hmm. between. And so, you know, I, I do praise the, uh, the work that went into that. Although it is interesting with this one, you do see a few directorial uh, moments. There's the famous moment, obviously, where the camera bumps into the altar in part one and everything shakes. Um, but there's also a couple of ones where the vision mixer switches a little too quickly. And there's one scene I noticed where he switches to a bunch of guards who pause for a moment and then take their cue to start marching. And so mm. you can just sort of see it's not quite as smooth as it was in other stories, which just shows, you know, this, this wasn't an easy thing to do. It was imperfect.
0: Oh, that's right. And something we haven't mentioned yet, and I think it's worth mentioning in the context of how these things were cut in camera and just sort of moved along at a pace, are what people refer to as Billy Fluffs, but what I want to say is it's not just Hartnell fluffing lines. Across all these stories, multiple actors, guest actors, etc., do fluff lines. Yes. Just yes. simply because of the way they're just pushing ahead like it's a, a stage play they've rehearsed once or twice and now have to perform. So, you know, people talk about Hartnell fluffing things. Oh, I noticed a lot of actors fluffing things across all of these.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's very true. Uh, Rob, no shock. I'm giving this an A+. What about you?
0: 8 out of 10 for me.
1: 8 out of 10. Not quite perfect for you, perfect for me.
0: Yeah, not quite perfect, but pretty damn close.
1: Pretty damn close. How close to perfect did you find the sensorites, Rob?
0: Well, Dave, let me start off by saying I think this is the snoozer of the season. It's, It's kind of interesting. I guess the first episode builds up some real what's going on here intrigue, but it just turns into a whole lot of meh, you know. There, there are times where the censorites are being pricks, and you just think, just, just shout at them. You know they don't like that. Kick them in the nuts. You know I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think Ian threatens to clobber one of them with a wrench at one stage, possibly in the first episode or something. And I'm like, yes, yes, more of that. They're so hopeless. Just smash them. Grab the Tardis lock. Move on. You know this could lose two episodes easily. It's just, it's, it's an odd little story. I get what it's trying to do. I I get that they're an interesting race in some ways, but I find them very frustrating to deal with. Like I say, just shout at them. Just, you know, (laughs) overwhelm them. I don't know why they don't do that. I I guess they've got to fill out the episodes, I guess. But, yeah, not not a a, a favourite episode of mine.
1: Interesting. I agree this is weaker. I don't think it's the weakest story of the season. I agree that it has its faults, but I'm actually the opposite in that I think this story gets better as it goes along. Oh, really? The, the first 10 minutes or so is quite interesting as they're exploring the ship and trying to work, work out what's going on. But I, I think that stuff on the ship really does drag and doesn't set us up for an exciting adventure. But as they get down to the sense and the other plots start to get involved, who is poisoning the aqueducts? What are these monsters in there? What is the plan of the city administrator? How How is he going to try and depose the first sensorite? as we start to get more plots, I think it actually becomes a much more interesting and perfectly good adventure. And I'm really quite enjoying it by the time we get to part three, part four, I think it relics along at at quite a good pace. I like the different characters of the sensorites. I think that that works really well. I I like the motivation of the humans is partly greed and avaricious, and also partly that sort of sense of uh, you know, the, the the Japanese soldier left over from World War II and fighting a war he doesn't have to fight. I, I think that works really quite well. A couple of important firsts in this story, one good, one bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is the first time the Doctor stays to help because it's the right thing to do. There is a point in this story, I think in Part 4, where the Doctor has cured him. He's yeah. won the trust of the sense rights, and they've said, fair enough, Here's the key to the TARDIS you can leave. Off Off you go. And he says, no, 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 we need to get to the bottom of this mystery and solve this problem for them. And it's then that he goes off of his own volition to explore the aqueduct. So that's a very important first change and moment, I think, in the Doctor's character. I'm also going to say the other first is, this is the first time that I think the limitations of the design and production show through. Although, and I think it is Cusick again doing the design here, some of his set designs and everything works very, very well and is very interesting. The look of the sensorites doesn't work. The mm-hmm. design of stuff like the the astronauts' costumes with the little cartoon rockets on them don't work, and there's a lot of things that just don't look quite as good. And i've I've been very much praising the production of all the stories up till now. This is the first time I think the production drops. Its bundle for this season
0: yeah the the sensorites feet have always bothered me i like
1: that they try to do something different mm, but it doesn't work
0: yeah and there's one who's a bit tubby <laughs> and and you can see his tidy whities through his uh jumpsuit <laughs> and uh that that's a bit weird um you mentioned earlier police procedurals and and things that sort of come from police procedurals and i guess here part of the the plot hinges on that moment Oh, I saw him take it out of his coat. Well, I wasn't wearing my coat. Oh, well, it was the cape. It was the cape. Oh, I just gave him the cape. So it wasn't the cape. Clearly, you're lying. So it sort of hinges on one of those type of uh, plot elements as well here.
1: Yeah, look, that that's true. That's true. And there is a bit of good old-fashioned detecting about why some sensorites are affected and others aren't and mm-hmm. which aqueducts it comes from, which I guess we need to remember. This was being designed to be watched by people like my dad, who were 11 or 12 when this went out. Yeah. You know, it's it's not designed... I mean, I, I was going to make the point we ran out of time with the Keys of Marinus. There's a lot in the Keys of Marinus that falls apart very quickly if you try to pick holes. Like, a huge amount. But mm-hmm. it wasn't designed to be done that way. And um, ne- neither was the censor, right?
0: Yeah. Scores, Dave?
1: Uh, my lowest score so far, I'm giving it a B. I do think this is underrated. I do think that it, you should... Give this a chance, listeners. Get to at least the end of part three before you give up on it.
0: Okay. I'm calling it the snoozer of the season, but I'm not giving it the lowest mark of the season.
1: Interesting.
0: I'm giving it a five out of ten, so I'm rating it better than Edge of Destruction. But I think of the two, I think I'd rather watch Edge of Destruction, maybe because it's shorter.
1: (laughs) That's really interesting. I'm glad that neither of us had it at the bottom. I, I really am. I think that it is worthy of more than that. I've got the historical again this is not planned, this is just how no, alternating goes that's it? I've got the historical again, I've got the reign of terror this is not a bad story but for me it is the weakest of the season I think you can start to see a bit of the energy running out, I think you can start to see a bit of that aim and ambition just getting a little bit more tired as they're just trying to get to the end of this season which I understand, it opens well and I like, mm-hmm. I like the opening. I like the stuff in the farmhouse. I like the stuff where they're working out where they are. And there are a number of good moments in it. I think it's a shame that the Robespierre episodes don't exist, because I think that would add a lot to watching the story. But the overwhelming problem with this is, to me, it lacks a villain. It, it, it lacks a city administrator. It lacks a Tatoxel. It lacks a Tagana. It's It hasn't got anything like that. The closest is, is, is the jailer, and he's really a comic comic relief character. Mm. It also doesn't have a Marco Polo or an Orc Locke or anything like that, who's a character that sort of accompanies the, the crew along. There's no one character, good or bad, that really ties this story together. And at the end of the day, not much happens. In Marco Polo, we travel half the way across Asia. In, in the Aztecs, although it's just about trying to escape, lots of things happen in that plot. In the Reign of Terror, it really is a lot of get locked up, escape, get locked up again, escape again. Mm. Maybe we'll get locked mm. up once mm. more. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it really is that. The Doctor gets to do a really profound performance. Hartnell looks great in the costume, but it is, it, it is plot-wise a very weak story. And look, I've said Susan's had some really good stories here. I think she's great in Marco Polo. She's great in the Sensorites. She is woeful here, and I wonder how much of the... Uh, derision of Susan is actually vested in this one story. The moment where she's like, "No, no, I don't care. I'll go get gear because I've got a headache. Whatever." Um, yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and that's just like that's pathetic. You know, I've 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 gone to work with a bad headache, and I would certainly run away from the guillotine with a bad yeah. headache. It doesn't work, and then all oh my god, witches! I mean, come on, pull yourself together. Yeah, yeah, that is that is weak. Good story for the Doctor. Some nice designs, some nice ideas, an interesting part of history, but a poor plot.
0: Okay. I acknowledge this is a lot of running around and being captured and escaping and not being entirely sure who's on whose side or all that sort of stuff. But I think the setting is what sells it to me. Okay. I might not be as interested in the setting as the first Doctor, quite conveniently, (laughs) is. Um... But I like, I like this era and, and the uh, Napoleonic era that follows it as well. And watching our 60s school teachers navigate something they know from the history books, obviously Barbara in particular, is a lot of fun. Speaking of history books, though the history is a little wobbly uh, in this one. <laughs>
1: like, it, it, it is a little wobbly if you sort of look at where Napoleon was in that moment and the role that Paul Barras had at that moment. It, it's it's not the most historically accurate. No, n-
0: no, which is interesting for a show that's trying to to be educational and teach kids stuff. That's that's they, true. Although it goes off the rails here. That,
1: that's true. Although I guess it's worth noting that the depiction of the fall of Robespierre is quite a- accurate and and actually surprisingly graphic now that we see the results of him being shot in the jaw they show that on the screen which is accurate and disturbing
0: Mm. so i think well from the sounds of things definitely i i like this more than you dave i think it's just this era in history and maybe it's because you know i i long for the massacre Uh, to be returned so maybe i just have a hankering to see stories set in france of a few hundred years ago and and this just fills the gap for me or something i don't know i will mention though billy on the chain gang and then whacking that guy over the back of the head that's quite good do you like that bit
1: yes i think it's actually (laughs) people sort of pull it out as look at how violent the doctor is here you know the heartland doctor it's but it's done with this real twinkle in his eye and, and it's he's done, loving it. He's loving it. But it's also done in that real doctor way of turning a baddie's vices against him and turning yes. this guy's greed into a weapon against him, which is, is actually, I think it, it's, it's, it's more than just braining him with a shovel.
0: Yeah. I mean, he steals that money. And at first I thought, Oh, well, what he he'll do here is uh, buy them out. He steals the money, then he'll he'll give it back to the guy and like buy them out, and they can get off doing the the work. But he goes to such lengths to sort of bury the 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 coins in the dirt and all of mm. that, and then pretend oh there's there's coins here in the dirt, and as you say, use the guy's um, greed against him. Very clever stuff.
1: Yeah, I, there are many many good parts, and, and and I think that being the weakest story in this season is is you know the weakest of a really good bunch. There, there is lots commended. I, I do repeat, I think. If episodes four and five existed and we could really see properly, and look, the animation gives us some idea, but it's it's not the best animation. But I think if we could really see the Doctor and Robespierre together, that may have solved the History Act aspect of it a little mm. bit more. But but even so, look, the very end of it where you get that sense of the fall of the concierge and the fall of Robespierre, it's still pretty pretty
0: impressive. It is. I'll comment, though, that I think the animation is better than some of the current animations we get. Oh, oh, yes, absolutely. You know, it's got beautiful shadows on the face, and I don't know if they've rotoscoped real actors, but some of the movements look almost realistic.
1: Yes, although some of the direction is obviously not true to what they shot at the time. True. True. Rob, I'm giving this my lowest mark of the season, which is an average C+.
0: I'm giving it a 6 out of 10.
1: Oh, I think that may be our closest.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so.
1: There you go. Well, we met perfectly at the end. Look, we actually <laughs> haven't been that far out of sync. You're a little bit down earlier than I was. But overall, I think we've both enjoyed it. Um, do you want to go first with some closing thoughts?
0: Yeah, Dave, I think this season is solid. It has the misstep for me of the censorites And The Edge of Destruction feels a bit amateur hour. But for something that ran on TV, as I mentioned at the start, almost for a year, every Saturday night, I find this an extraordinary achievement in general. Half the stories are sci-fi, half the stories are historical. I think that's a good mix. And they're proper historicals. You step into the reign of terror, like we've just been talking about, and you might lose your head if you're suspected of being against the revolution. That's great. That's drama. It's real. It's not, oh, um, Robespierre drank this wine and it had an alien organism in it and it took over his body and uh, it, it fed on fear. So he had to start signing off on killing all these people to, to ramp up the fear, <laughs> to to keep the, the alien organism happy. You know, that'd be the 2022 version of The Reign of Terror. I don't understand why once in a while we can't do proper historicals anymore. People come up with all these reasons why we shouldn't, but I just find it weird that a show that celebrates we can do anything we like, well, except pure historicals, (laughs) Um, you know, but I'm going down a rabbit hole there.
1: Well, well, just let me join you and add that I, I, I agree. And the Aztecs is another really good example of that. Tatoxel is a intelligent, cunning... Clever villain in his own right and just because he's from 400 years ago doesn't mean he's as wily as any villain from the modern times and one misstep by the crew there and that's the end Mm. it doesn't need more
0: than that exactly right and and you don't want to do this every week indeed you might not want to do it more than once a series in the modern era but i think we could do it yeah i think Mm. so too Anyway, I think you see after watching season one That Doctor Who does have a lot of things already in place You mentioned that earlier Like the look of the TARDIS is just iconic from the start mm. And you know, certain sounds, the way the Doctor acts and so on and so forth But you see, there's still a few more things that still have to be set up And you want to keep watching I think if you are a kid in the 60s and you got to the end of this You'd be really looking forward to when Doctor Who comes back on telly again
1: Yeah, maybe they'll even bring those Daleks back.
0: Exactly.
1: Look, Rob, it's no surprise that I loved watching this season again. This is some of my favourite Doctor Who. There is no story here I do not enjoy watching and couldn't watch again and again. Why is that? Because we have four really great regulars. Hartnell is in command from the moment he first, first walks on screen. He is the leader of this show. His character evolves and we see the twinkle in his eye slowly Mm. work its way around. We see him coming to accept Ian and Barbara as the show goes on. And that's really, really clever and really, really really effective. Look, William Russell and Jacqueline Hill are fantastic and they are equally worthy of the Doctor. Susan has great stories and weaker stories. I get that she's the weakest of the four, but when she's good, she's still really effective. We talked about Marco Polo, where she gets to be a teenager, acting with another teenager, but still adding those moments of mystery, still mm. talking about what it's like on her home planet and, and how she is. You know, that's really, really effective. But more than anything, the reason I love this season is the ambition and the adventure. Whether we're wandering around the dead planet of Scaro, or Cathay in the 13th century or the Aztecs, or exploring Marinus, it's always interesting and new and different. Visually, it's so cleverly done and so well done. This is not cheap and nasty television that we sort of have been told that Doctor Who in the classic era was. This is cutting-edge television for its time, written by serious writers, used to writing for the stage. It takes the time to tell a story, and I just love immersing myself. In these worlds That it takes the time to create I get that modern television can't be like this I think that's a shame Because I just love this so very very much
0: Would it be better in colour And don't think of Marco Polo when I ask that Question without notice
1: Probably not I think that a lot of the effectiveness of the ambition Does rely on that black and white Small Mm. picture That's the nature of the television They were making at the time, and it works really well. They get the best effectiveness out of that. Yeah,
0: agree. All right, so that was season one, again, as voted for by you, the listener. What have we got now, Rob? Dave, we have a lovely letter from Alex Wilcock, who writes to us based on our recent listmakers episode about guest stars. Would you like me to read this?
1: Yes, I've seen Alex on Twitter. He's, he's, um, a very loyal listener, so yeah, it'll be lovely to hear what he has to say.
0: Okay. He says, "'Hi, guys. This one's hard, isn't it? "'I was going to suggest a couple more "'and had about 20 names rattling around in my head "'before my PC had warmed up to type them in. <laughs> "'So here's something different, "'as I agree with you more than on about any of your lists. "'Julian Glover's probably been my favourite actor "'for about as long as I can remember, "'but I want to say something about Kylie and Timothy Dalton.' They were the ones who came to mind as the starriest of all when you announced this list. Kylie had become an even bigger pop star by this point and I don't think it's any coincidence her episode got the highest ratings Modern Who has had so far. So she'd probably be my definition of a guest star.
1: That's a very fair point we should acknowledge, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But then Timothy Dalton is, if anything, even more ideal casting By this stage, the lost and legendary Time Lords had been built up as titans from a greater plane of reality, and F me if any guest star in Who history has ever embodied that more than the lead from the titan of cinema franchises. You prompted me to watch that incredible pull-out cliffhanger on top of the already worldwide cliffhanger again, and I still gasped. You seem surprised you'd come up with few 60s guest stars between you. I'd add Peter Barkworth for The Ice Warriors 2, while right from the start there's Alan Wheatley in The Daleks, the Sheriff of Nottingham in the massive hit '50 series The Adventures of Robin Hood, then Citizen Kane's George Coolerus. So Doctor Who's always been at it. And I want to start piling on personal favourites like Philip Maddock, Peter Jeffrey, Wanda Ventham, but I could go on forever. So instead of me, what struck me most about your list wasn't the 60s, but the 80s. JNT was famous for bringing in guest stars as producer, but you only tangentially mention his era through other actors. Julian Glover bouncing into William Gaunt. You were probably thinking Shakespeare with him. And quite right too Maybe the Kari Mulligan of the 80s was Martin Clunes as Lon An actor before they became a star Maybe the Timothy Dalton of the 70s and 80s was Valentine Dial The Man in Black as the Black Guardian A star actor bringing audiences awareness of his starring roles to embiggen the role But the one that sprang to mind first for an 80s guest star was Nicholas Parsons written for a young man a game show host who'd not played a serious acting role in decades utterly moving in one of the great performances of the period a guest star being a beautifully understated actor
1: that's a really good point well actually that's a couple of really good points i think good call there about martin clunes who i you know grew to love i mean behaving badly Um, (laughs) a great great actor sure but yeah i mean nicholas parsons probably didn't mean as much to us because we didn't grow up with Sale of the Century and all that, that stuff he did. He was just a, a the, the butt of jokes in the goodies. But yeah, for for the UK, yeah, absolutely.
0: Alex's letter continues. So can I suggest a future list for you as you both did what it said on the tin with guest stars and one day choose your best guest performances, which may be stars or may not, but to throw in an 80s hypothetical by way of illustration, The Caves of Androzani reached for the stars, and if Diana Dawes and David Bowie had said yes to roles, both would be contenders for Doctor Who's biggest ever guest stars, and they might well have been brilliant. But while neither were big stars, John Normington and Christopher Gable gave two of the most stunning guest performances who has ever seen, and I wouldn't trade them, even for Diana Rigg and Roger Moore. Now, there's a thought. I'd be interested to hear who you'd pick on acting, alone best wishes and burbling on from alex
1: wow well we will definitely put that topic into the hat of russell on and Mm. um that 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 would be tough
0: it really would that would actually be tougher than just picking out some starry people and you know doing what we did
1: (laughs) wow but yeah you've you've got me thinking there alex that's that's really interesting Mm.
0: yeah yeah great letter great letter
1: Other than season one, Rob, what have you been watching as we we head towards the end of our
0: episode? Dave, I I was so taken up with season one watching this month. I didn't watch a hell of a lot. I have been watching Riverdale. I am still a Riverdale viewer. It's just getting barking mad and that's really saying something given where it's been in past years.
1: Yeah, I must admit I didn't get much past season one or two of uh, Riverdale, not because I wasn't enjoying it. It just sort of Fell by the wayside, because as we've often said, there's so much television today. I have been watching Star Trek Strange New Worlds and absolutely loving it. Yeah. it It is just wonderful, fun television. It, it is, along with Heartstopper, which also came out in the last few weeks, just an example of how sometimes just nice, friendly, lovely television is not a bad thing, and Strange New Worlds... Does what I love Trek doing, which is it just takes these explorers going to, wait for it, Strange New Worlds <laughs> and seeking out new life and new civilizations and doing it with a cast of characters that have felt far more real and natural and human to me than probably any cast since Deep Space Nine. So I've I've really enjoyed what's happened in Star Trek, Strange New Worlds. That's what's been... um breaking up my my Doctor Who watch over the last few weeks. Obviously, Kenobi will be out by the time this episode airs, or at least part one will, so that's something I'm definitely looking forward to and uh, very possibly will be the subject in alternate galaxies at the end of the season. Uh, But I'm also looking forward to the third and final season of Love, Victor coming out on Disney in the next couple of weeks.
0: Oh, very cool. And I'll, I'll join you in the Kenobi love. And as I've mentioned before as well, I'll be watching The Orville very, very soon too.
1: Excellent. I do know how much you love that show. Yeah, I do. I really do. Now, Rob, we threw around a few ideas for topics for next month. What did we settle on? Please tell our listeners.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll set this up a bit by saying back in 2018, Dave, we did an episode, Classic Monsters Brought Back in New Who. And the topic we want to do now for next month is similar in a way, but also different. Same, same, but different as the kids say. And that's classic or even new series monsters or villains we'd like to see brought back in general.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to talk about what we'd like to see. And this isn't just another, you know, episode of The List Makers where we're just going to throw five out there. I think we really want to explore What's been brought back and what hasn't, what could, and, and why you would do it now. So not just, let's just have this monster back, but, but why you would do it and how you would do it and, and what you think would work. Or, or, as you say, maybe villains.
0: Exactly. And that could be a classic monster coming back into the new show. Or it could be someone introduced in the new series coming back again for some reason. You know, it could be anything.
1: Absolutely. RTD is back, so we've got the good guy back. Why can't we have a bad guy back?
0: Yeah, watch out for the Slovene, maybe.
1: I've I've already got one pick from uh, season one that I want to see return. Oh, really? Yeah. Adam. We will reveal all (laughs) next month.
0: We will indeed. But until then, I've been Rob.
1: And I've been Dave.
0: We'll see you next time on The Doctor Who Show. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show. With Rob and Dave Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at DWShow.net.